Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I am Ian Fisher, and I'm your host for this week. We're really excited. Well, not quite as excited as we were for the last episode where we got the opportunity to all gather together in person and do a show, but it is nice to be back home, and I'm sure that Beth and Sally feel the same. We're back to our regularly scheduled programming for today, and we want to start by talking a little bit about the transfer process. Now, it is the middle of February where we are recording this. It is going to be late February by the time it reaches your ears. But this is a time when we see a lot of students starting to think about that switch between colleges. And when we talk about the admission process, usually the focus is on high school students applying as freshmen. But there are a growing number of students who are also applying as transfers, whether that's from two-year to four-year institutions or between four-year institutions. And so joining us to unpack some of the questions that transfer students might have, some of the thought process that they may be engaging in, is my colleague, Ryan Kelly. Hey, Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ian. It's nice to have you here. And your admissions experience was at the University of Colorado Boulder, among uh, other places, right? Yep. And can you tell me a little bit about just the volume of transfer applications that you tended to see at Colorado? My sense would be that it would be pretty large as a public flagship institution. You would be correct. So I worked um, closely with transfer students at a variety of institutions, um, including CU, um, where, yes, as a flagship public institution, we received a lot of students um, from a lot of different backgrounds, four year and two years. Uh, but I also worked close to the transfer students at private institutions, specifically at Fordham University, where, yes, we had a large transfer population, relatively speaking, but it was much, much smaller compared to, to CU. Um, but they still had the same goals, um, different locations, but the students were, were looking to change where they were to something different and what they oftentimes believed to be something better. Yeah, I want to pick up on that, that the goals and and your sense of that perception, right? So the mm -hmm. desire of change on the part of a student because they perceive another opportunity to be better for them in some way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have any advice for students who are in their first year of college right now, and they may be struggling in some respect. How can you identify what is just the normal transition period to college making friends, being away from home for the first time, being being responsible for yourself, being independent versus a real urge or a need to have to switch institutions. How can students start to unpack those feelings and figure out which direction to move forward? I think you hit the nail on the head when you said figuring out, is this just a normal transition or is there something bigger happening? Is there a personal issue that is directly related to the institution that I'm currently at. It's not the fit that I thought it was, or is there, and I have not struggled necessarily academically, but in my time at my school, I have determined that the program or major that I'm in is not what I want. And what I do want is no longer, is not available at my current school. So continuing here would not 
allow me to pursue my academic goals. Um, and then just having a real self-reflective moment of saying, what is actually happening now? Is this just, I'm a little homesick. Um, my friends from high school seem to be happier than I am at their institutions for whatever reason. Um, or is it something much more concrete that this actually is not a good fit for me academically, personally, financially? Um, and having that honest conversation with yourself as well as with others, family, friends, um, faculty at the institution to say what is happening and have I actually given it the old college try where I'm currently at? Have I maximized the resources available to me to help me in this transition um, fully maximize my time here. Yeah. Oftentimes students have a rough transition for whatever reason, and they just see it as easier to cut bait and move on. And oftentimes that results in just repeating the same situation next year, someplace else. Right. And in that next year, there's a greater sense of urgency because now you have fewer years in which to make that transition and figure out the the new institution that you belong to. And I think some of these feelings of difficulty are exacerbated in many ways by social media, um, You know, the way that students talk about their experiences. It's funny because I think a lot of kids figure I'm less happy than my friends are where they're going. Yep. But I think students are not ever outwardly complaining about the institutions they attend, right? They don't want to, they don't want to suggest that they made a mistake or that they're having some difficulty. And so it's like, everything's great for me here, but in reality, it's, it's not so great. Um, that is normal. And I just want to make sure that people that are listening here, the transition to college is challenging for everyone. Um, it really isn't like you hit the ground running and you're just like, Oh, this is wonderful. It's easy. I'm making all these friends. I don't have any social challenges. My roommate is the best person and showers every day. <laughs> like that just doesn't happen for the overwhelming majority of people. And so you've got to figure what is just that transition period? And what is something that I need to take action on? And because we are talking about transfers, Ryan, I wonder if there are things that we can think of as specific items that might typically inspire a transfer decision. Like a student says they don't have this or they are not supporting me in this way. Or how would you guide students to identify, yeah, this is maybe a situation where you want to make the switch versus, you know, hang in there. It's going to get better. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I ask uh, that question of a lot of students that I work with which is tell me more, what, what thoughts have you put into this process? As I said earlier, a lot of times people or students will say, this school is just not for me for, for whatever reason. And they're looking for any port in the storm. Um, and they will apply to the school that they've heard of or their friend is having a great time, to your point, on social media. And I'll just, I'll just go there and that will be better. But I really strongly encourage them to say, what am I missing now? And what do I need to fill in that hole in my academic or personal expectations? And where can I locate that? Um, and that the transfer process, when it's successful, can be great. You can, I don't want to say fix problems, but you can get a better institution for you. 
if you're looking at it correctly, if you are asking the right questions that are relevant to you and your own very specific situation, there might be 10,000 kids looking to transfer to a school and they probably have 10,000 very different experiences and why they want to transfer. So it does become very specific to the student and how another institution can or can't help you on that particular journey. So asking yourself, okay, I'm an English major now at a small liberal arts school, but I really want to go be an electrical engineer. Well, you're probably going to be going to a larger institution. How does that fit with your not only academic goals, but how is that going to alter you personally? Um, You know, you went from 10-person rooms with professors to 300-person lecture halls and tens of thousands of students on campus. And, you know, how does that impact you positively or negatively um, throughout the next three, four years of your life? So figuring out what, what is not working and why. Have I really done everything I can where I'm currently at to make it work? Um, and if the answer is honestly yes, okay, what do I now need? And where are these schools that can offer it for me? Um, because there are so many things that students will say, well, I just need another major and my school doesn't offer that. So if I go to this school, things will be better. They're not realizing that transferring can lose credits. Transferring can be more expensive depending on the school. Transferring, I might be going into a school in January and there aren't a lot of other transfer students and everybody else already has a well-established group of friends and relationships and I'm just, I've got a new major, but also have a whole new source of, of issues to deal with. So there's a lot of things to unpack. And the good news is we have some resources available to students that can that can help with that process. Um, things to think about, questions to ask yourself and how to move forward with that with that plan. Yeah, and I'd love to talk a little bit about about some of those resources and, and just things that we would recommend for students to to think about going forward. I do think the important piece that I heard there was, you know, how much have you put into the place where you are? How much have you invested and, and really worked at it? Um, and, you know, I think that when you are applying as a transfer student, you need to make a case for your reasons for the transition. And if your transfer is, you know, I've always wanted to go to a more prestigious school, or I really want to have a place that has certain clubs and organizations and lo and behold, the place where you are currently has those same clubs and organizations, but you've never participated. You know, I think it's harder for a school to say, yeah, we'll take you as a transfer. We're really excited about you because there's not a confidence that you're going to jump in with both feet and take advantage of those opportunities. To your point, what is different about this new circumstance versus the old circumstance? And so there is quite a bit of reflection that is required here to think about not just why am I unhappy here, um, but what do I need to do in the future to ensure that I can have the best experience possible? And of course, there are things like cost and major that are black and white. It's like this place is less expensive than this place. Okay, that's pretty clear. This place offers a major that this other place doesn't. That's pretty clear. But I think if it's experiential and it has to do with your behavior or attitude with respect to your school, that's an important thing to reflect on. And I agree with all of that. And in addition to that, occasionally, I think maybe my perspective right there was very four-year to four-year transition. I'm going from this four-year institution to that four-year institution. Whereas there's many other populations that are looking to transfer, specifically students at a two-year institution who have 
completed those two years and moving on to a four-year institution is the most logical next step. There's still things to think about that we still covered, but there's they're not looking to get out of a bad situation. They're looking to continue the situation as was their plan, including them. I still recommend that they start thinking about that next step um, to that four-year institution sooner rather than later to make sure that they're following any articulation agreements or they have any kind of necessary courses or they're not going to lose credits. So regardless of where you're coming from and where you're going and why, good, bad, or indifferent, the, the sooner you can think about the process of transitioning to another institution, the more likely you are to set yourself up for success. And that's, that's an odd kind of paradox, I think, because for two-year students, it makes a ton of sense. It's like, you're going to talk about these gen eds, you're going to really be focused on what your major is, you're going to ensure that all of your credits transfer so that you only have to do two years at the four-year. For an uh, incoming freshman, hopefully they're not thinking about transferring from the beginning, they're not Correct. planning to transfer. And so there is quite a bit of work that they have to do once they've made that decision to at least per uh, investigate the transfer market. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of recommendations? I want. I want to um, talk a little bit about um, just thinking about grades and uh, or not great courses and how they transfer and so forth. But I, I'm curious about students who are surprised at the fact that they don't like a particular institution as a four year and they are now looking for something different. How do you recommend that they go through the research process and what do they need to do on their home campus in order to put themselves in the best position to have a successful transfer? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I know we say this a lot, but it depends um, on the the program that you're looking or school you're looking to switch to or transfer mm-hmm. to. Um, you could switch. So when I was at CU, um, if you wanted to switch to English or history or transfer from another school to CU's English or history problem uh, programs, relatively straightforward. There was nothing specific you needed to do in regards to academic courses. We were looking to see what courses you took, what grades you earned. Um, but if you wanted to switch to the business program or you wanted to transfer to engineering, not only were there grades and minimum GPAs and things that needed to be met, but there were specific courses that you needed to have as well. Hmm. So you could be a 4.0 student with great classes, but if you were missing calculus or physics, you know, there was extremely unlikely you were going to be admitted to an engineering program. So I think looking down the road to say, okay, I want, I'm not happy where I'm at now, but I really want to study XYZ at school XYZ, going to their transfer admissions websites and saying, are there prerequisites that I should really be thinking about taking next semester or the next two semesters so that I can put those on my schedule today and be working towards not only doing well in those courses, but having those requirements to be a more competitive applicant for the schools that I'm going to be looking to transfer to. The gray area is some schools don't have any of those. Some schools have it for some majors, not for others. And sometimes those things conflict with another institution. School X might require you know, calculus, another school might require physics or you know, whatever it happens to be. So that's why I do encourage more research up front, figuring out what you want and what you need to do between now and then to uh, apply. You should be thinking I'm applying in a year, not I'm gonna apply tomorrow. 
that is not the approach you should have. That's the question I was wondering, because these students that go to two-year institutions are doing two years. They're committed in many cases Mm -hmm. to that minimum of of the certain number of credit hours before they're transfer eligible. And I think a lot of students who are in their first year right now, they're thinking, I got to transfer, but it's hard to do that with only one year under your belt. There's not a lot of proof that you can show that you can handle college level work because you've only got one semester behind you. How would you encourage those first year students to think about their return in the fall? I can imagine a lot of students kind of, I don't want to go back to that place. My plan Mm -hmm. is to transfer. Like this isn't really working for me. How does a student think about that plan given that it might be necessary for them to satisfy certain requirements in order to be transfer eligible? I would say work towards doing what you have to do to be successfully a transfer student but make sure you're doing everything in your power to maintain where you are and that you're going to be graduating on track to graduate on time. Um, You could do everything that's needed to do to transfer to another institution and they can still say no. At which point, what do you do then? You have to, well, I'm assuming potentially go back to the school you're currently at and you don't want to be behind schedule. That just is not going to make what is presumably a pretty rough situation that much more difficult. That's right. That's right. And and I think we always kind of have the view that applying for a new institution is always better when you're supported by a present day institution. That's true in high school. It's better mm-hmm. to apply during your senior year rather than applying in the middle of a gap year because mm-hmm. you have the support of, of your teachers and your counseling office and applying as a transfer. You want the support of your home institution who, by the way, are able to do this. They're not going to say, oh, we don't like you anymore. We're not going to help you now that you've crossed us off your list. That's part of what they're there for is helping you to get the education that you need. So Absolutely. make use of those resources uh, and and be thoughtful about your plan as Ryan's recommending here. Um, any final words of wisdom or, or particular things that we didn't cover that you want to point students to in terms of a resource? Um, be, be deliberate. I'm being a little bit repetitive here, but it really is doing the research up front makes you a better prepared student to transfer or helps you realize that where you are currently is, I don't know if salvageable is the right word, but not as bad as you thought. Maybe it's just, you know what, this was a rough transition, but I have found different clubs and organizations. I have a community. I am now feeling better about my academic and my academic journey. So the idea of transferring as um, kind of a lifeline is no longer needed because I've done the research and affirm the other institutions as well as taking advantage of what's available to me at my home campus. Um, so the sooner you can do that and get a more informed decision on what your life would look like if you stayed and what it would look like if you left, um, the better prepared you'll be regardless of that outcome. Perfect. Do your homework, make a plan, follow through. I love I like it, Ryan. It. Yeah. Uh, thanks for being here for this this segment on the show. Folks, uh, if you have any questions about transferring, you can always send those in to us at um, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. When we come back, we'll be answering some of your listener questions. So don't go away.
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are jumping into some of your listener questions. As I mentioned in our last segment, you can always send us a question. You can do that on our Facebook page. You can do that by sending us an email, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. You can shout at us on Twitter. You can leave a comment on an Instagram page. What else is there, Shannon? I Help me out here. Oh, geez. Um, YouTube, LinkedIn, our website. There's a, there's a direct, yes. We'll That's our preferred mail. method. Yes. You can f- figure out <laughs> Shannon's you- address and mail her a postcard. She'll answer that. Bring it. Absolutely. We're not going to share it here on the show. You got you to gotta figure that out. Please don't investigate. <laughs> <All right>. uh, <laughs> Let's encourage the stalkers. <laughs> uh, stalkers already know that this is Shannon Vasconcelos, one of our college finance experts and a regular here on the podcast. Um, Shannon, let's just jump right in. I'm going to yes. have you do, let's do an admissions question first. Cause I feel like talking. Okay. And the first question comes in from Shannon. What? This okay. may be an asking, this actually is, I'll confess an asking for a friend question. This Shannon is me, not actually for myself, but this question came up in my local town mom's Facebook group. Okay. It was posed cool. by the parent of a high school senior. Mm-hmm. It got the moms in a tizzy. And I want you to tell us if they should be in a tizzy. They received that the parents of high school seniors received an email from the principal. And as part of that email, it noted that the GPA that was being reported on the transcripts of seniors that were being sent to colleges uh, would include grades. The GPA would include their grades from semester one only courses. So courses they completed, but not 
semester one grade grades from their full year courses. So, you know, they're halfway through those courses at this point. Those grades they've received so far would not be included in the GPA calculated mm -hmm. on the transcript. Would this put those seniors at my local high school at a disadvantage in the admissions process? No. Thought so. That's what yeah. I told them, Ian, but I wanted to check with you. <laughs> That's great. Um, the first thing just overall is any policy at your child's high school is not going to negatively impact your child because it's not something that's in your child's control. So the important thing from a college admissions perspective is we want to understand the context for every applicant and the context is set by the school where they attend. If a school decides that our policy all of a sudden is instead of A's, B's and C's, we're going to give Q's, L's and R's, that's the choice of the school. And the admission office is going to try and figure out what those grades mean and what they represent. The other thing here is that GPA is an average. Remember, it is not a specific grade. It is an overall snapshot of a student's performance. And college admission officers are focused on the grades themselves. So if the mid-year report includes partial grades despite omitting those grades from the GPA, that's fine. If counselors are able to reach out to admission officers and say, here's a progress report for this student, note that these grades are not final, that's fine. So, you know, college admission officers will use whatever info is available to them to make that decision. But the GPA is just not a super important number by and large. And so we can just focus on the grades themselves. And again, understand that the context is set by the school. Perfect. And is it true that most colleges, whatever GPA the high school provides, will likely recalculate it using their own method on the college's if, end anyway? If the high school GPA is the same as how the college reads that GPA, it's usually coincidence. The college yeah. doesn't care what the high school's calculation method yeah. is. They use their own system. Um, and, you know, I always tell people when I read applications at Reed, I didn't know what a student's GPA was, nor did I care because yep. I had all of the factors that determine yes. that GPA. Much better, clearer snapshot. Perfect. Um, we've got this guy, Rob, who sent us three questions. They don't appear to be three-part question. They appear to be right. three separate questions. <laughs> we love getting questions from everybody. Uh, so let's start with Rob's first question. Yes. Um, if you live out of state, but are awarded in-state institution at a particular university. This would be public, I would assume. Yep. For aid purposes, does your cost of attendance total remain at the out-of-state level because you're not a state student or the in-state level because you are awarded in-state tuition? So I think that to come down to it, it um, to answer Rob's question, it's not, there's two ways, let me step back. There's two ways a college could could view the awarding of in-state tuition. And first of all, the cost of attendance is a number, it's a budget a college sets that is essentially the most a student could receive in financial aid or borrow in student loans. It is an estimate of what it would cost the average student to attend this university for a year. Okay. So in this situation where it's an out-of-state student awarded in-state tuition, presumably because this is an out-of-state student that the college really wants to enroll, is trying to recruit them, offers them this tuition discount. A uh, couple ways a college could do this. They could either keep the tuition, the cost of attendance at the out-of-state level 
and award this student, let's just put some numbers that, uh, on it to make it a little easier to understand. Let's say the out-of-state tuition is $20,000 more than the in-state tuition. Maybe the full cost of attendance budget for an out-of-state student is $50,000. They're awarding the student in-state tuition. Um, so essentially giving them a $20,000 scholarship, meaning their remaining cost of attendance is $30,000. Now $30,000 is the most they could receive in additional financial aid scholarships borrow in student loans. That's one way the school could approach it. They could also simply give this student an in-state tuition budget. So now their cost of attendance is $30,000 and they can receive other financial aid and scholarships and loans totaling $30,000. Either way, it's sort of a technical process behind the scenes of what the actual cost of attendance looks like. But in either situation, this student can receive no extra scholarship funding. They can't borrow any more in student loans. So however technically the school does it, um, a student cannot receive in total financial aid scholarship student loans any more um, than e their cost of attendance or it's really the cost of attendance less any f other financial aid and scholarships they're getting. So either way, in this scenario, it's $30,000. They're not getting any more money than that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. So they don't say like, you're actually out of state. And so maybe you want some more money. They would say, this is what it costs you to attend this school. This is how much we're willing to give you. Exactly. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, next question for you, is. Ian comes in from Rebecca. She emailed us. I'm a private school counselor and regular listener to your podcast. Thanks all right. for all the work you do. We love it when school counselors uh, write into us. This is That's phenomenal. Uh, Rebecca asks, are you seeing concurrent credit programs emerge as AP dual enrollment replacements? How do colleges view concurrent credit in the application process? And do they hold up the same way that AP courses or dual enrollment courses do as far as demonstrating rigor to colleges? How likely are concurrent credits to transfer to various types of institutions? So concurrent credits, I think of as being very similar to dual enrollment types of classes. And I, I wonder if this is a distinction without a difference. It might just have to do with yeah. what the institutions that are offering these credits actually call, call the them. programs, right? So a dual enrollment program um, could be a program where you are taking a class at your high school and it is sponsored by a local college. Maybe it's a community college, maybe it's a four-year school. And by taking that class, you are earning credit both at the institution that's sponsoring it and at your high school because you need high school courses in order to graduate. For a concurrent enrollment class, uh, typically you can take a class at a community college or university and that credit transfers back to your high school. So you're taking the class on the campus, mm -hmm. but you are actually getting credit in both places. It's possible I even have those distinctions switched and dual enrollment <laughs> happens on the college <laughs> campus and concurrent enrollment happens on the high school campus. The function of this is that basically you've got a an ostensibly college level course that's counted twice. It counts as a high school class. It also counts as a college class. 
that's where the issue comes up is that many colleges and universities don't count those credits twice. They would say, look, if you're going to count this as a high school class, which we'd like you to do because it satisfies a graduation requirement, then you cannot also claim it as a college class. It needs to be in one bucket or the other. And we're happy to say, yes, this was a rigorous class. You took it at a college campus or it was sponsored by a college. It's at the college level. But what we can't do is give you credit at our institution for taking this class. And that's because a lot of schools, I have, have rules about how they recognize that credit. And they also want you to take classes on their campus. That's, that's part of what it means for them to award the degree at the end of your process. Right. And so when colleges promise credit for high school students, whether through a dual enrollment or a concurrent enrollment process, typically that promise is much more overstated than is the reality. It usually applies only to a small handful of schools. Um, You know, if you look at Running Start, for example, in the state of Washington, that is a dual enrollment kind of program where students are taking community college classes, but those credits only transfer to seven public institutions in the state of Washington. And so, If you want to take those credits out to Oregon or to California or to a private school, even in Washington, you can't take them with you. So for students who are wanting to stay local, who like the options that are available to them in state, who recognize that these credits transfer, I think dual enrollments, concurrent enrollment programs can be really good. For students who are looking for more flexibility or who are looking at more selective institutions, AP coursework tends to be better from a standpoint of an admission officer, because it is standardized. We know what the AP level of work is, which is much different from the wide variety that you're going to see across community colleges, from high school teachers, and from community college professors. So that AP level hits a certain benchmark that I think is really helpful for admission officers when they're evaluating students. Um, so hopefully that answers the question, uh, you know, in terms of those those distinctions. Um, I would tend to say for top students, look at AP or IB. Um, right. But but for students who are looking at those local and state options, dual enrollment can be really nice too. That's helpful for me. I hadn't thought of it that way, that the AP course is not better necessarily, but it's standardized. And that's what the colleges can count on. That's right. Um, I have a student this year who's actually, he exhausted his um, high school curriculum. He took all of the APs that were available to him there and then went to the community college after that to be able to mm. round out his curriculum, which I thought was really cool. And it was a yeah. way for him to get some some good experience that he wouldn't have gotten at his home high school. So that's a really great option for students. But I typically would say try and exhaust that high school curriculum before you mm-hmm. start to go outside of it to look for other opportunities. Got it. Uh, let's go back to Rob. Um, Rob from Texas is wondering, uh, is it true that payments to student loans are only reported to credit bureaus after a student graduates and that loans paid off while in college are not reported to credit bureaus? This is a good question. I will be perfectly honest with Rob that I wasn't sure of the answer to this question. So I do what I often do when I don't know the answer to a question. I took it to my colleagues, both my colleagues who actually have children in college who are borrowing student loans, as well as my colleagues who, before joining us here at Bright Horizons College Coach, worked in the lending industry at student loan lenders, student loan servicers, and asked them what they did. Uh, And the universal answer I got from everyone I spoke with was that this is not correct, that the student loans are reported 
fairly immediately to the credit bureaus that my colleagues with children in college could see those loans on their credit report. And my colleagues that had worked in the lending industry also reported that their uh, former employers did in fact report um, to credit bureaus immediately. So not a, don't know exactly the motivation behind Rob's question here. I'm guessing maybe they are looking for a way to help their college student build credit. Maybe they don't need to borrow student loans and they're wondering if they should take them anyway to start building a credit history. And that would be one strategy um, that would work to, to start building a credit history. There are other things you could do now, depending on the kind of student loans you're offered. If you have some financial need, you'll be offered subsidized loans, which don't any recruit any interest until after graduation, in which case this is almost a no cost prospect. Sure, take the loans. It doesn't cost you anything for four, your four years of college. Uh, however, if you don't qualify for subsidized loans and it's unsubsidized loans that you're qualifying for, those will begin accruing interest immediately. So there is would be a substantial cost to the strategy to help build credit. Um, there are other things you can do taking out a, uh, the student could take out a secured credit card or be made an authorized user on the parent's credit card, can start building a credit history. That way, um, there's a new program that's run out of Experian, the credit bureau called Credit Boost, where um, a, it's usually a young person who could benefit from this. If you pay your rent on time and utilities on time, so things that aren't typically reported to credit bureaus, you can actually get them sort of counted into your credit history and towards your credit score. So those would just be some other strategies. Um, but the, the student loan strategy will also work. Um, there just may be a cost depending on the, the loans that you're qualifying for. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. Let's do one more. I think uh, this one from Monica is potentially fun. Monica asks, how do you think the college admissions process will change or be impacted by chat GPT in relation to college essays? This new open free AI now just passed an Ivy League exam and the medical bar exam and can write a pretty good essay in seconds. Yeah. So Shannon, we were all in New York together on the admission side. We got to gather yes. um, at the end of uh, last month. And that's when Sally and Beth and I were able to hang out and do the podcast together. And this was a big topic of conversation yeah. for us uh, because I think I think this news had just come out at that point in time. I would sort of take maybe argue Monica's question where she says it can write a pretty good essay in seconds. So it depends on what you define as pretty good. Pretty good. Um, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's not really a good essay. I think it it has the rhythm and feel of kind of a standard middling college essay. But the thing mm -hmm. to keep in mind about chat GPT is that is it really just a souped up search engine at this point. It's really not artificial intelligence in many ways. So what it does is it, it reaches out and it mines across all of these data and it pulls in information from across all those data and says, here's something that kind of looks like what I think you're asking me for, which is mm -hmm. why it resembles a good college essay because they're looking across many, many examples and saying, these are the pieces that I think are mm. required in order to make this work. What it lacks, of course, is the humanity, the personality, the personalization yeah. that comes from that. And so I, I, I'm not especially worried about the impact that it's going to have on um, students writing essays. I do think that there will be some impact in terms of how colleges um, will communicate their expectations to students. Uh, to me, 
submitting work that was written by an AI program is a form of cheating. And I think colleges might just have to be a little yeah. bit more explicit about the fact that that it is, um, you know, and, and students need to be careful about the way that they use these tools in order to provide content that supports their efforts. Um, there's a great podcast that I want to say Ezra Klein hosted with a proponent of AI who was critiquing the quality of chat GPT and, and whether mm-hmm. it's actually going to be able to do the kinds of things that we fear it will do um, as a right. writing space and, and calls into question that that is something that will happen. Um, and then I talked to our friends over at Arbor Bridge um, just yesterday and, you know, Megan over there said that uh, she thinks it's going to be a paywall soon, that right now it's free and it's collecting all of your data as you're asking at this <laughs> info, but soon it's going to put up a a paywall and it's going to ask people to have to pay to use it. So my view, which is actually in the minority here at College Coach, is that I don't think we'll be talking about ChatGPT in a year. Um, And I'm not super concerned about it. But I do think that ongoing questions about writing and about how we use technology to communicate um, are very, very important outside of the scope of the college process. And the reason I love the essay, Shannon, is not because it's a torturous process for the students I work with, though they perceive me to love it for that reason, Uh, (laughs) because being able to communicate your thoughts and being able to articulate who you are and having to go through that brainstorm is a really helpful exercise that is reflective and personalized and to me, very, very important. So I I don't want to see students trying to sidestep that with technology, I want to see them embracing that opportunity and looking for a way to share who they are with colleges. Um, so this is my podcast. This is my soapbox, my podcast. <laughs> I get to do this kind of stuff. <laughs> on occasion. Uh, are you worried okay. about chat GPT? Is it something that like, as you read this stuff that, that worries or concerns you, or just like, you just don't know what to think? What do you think? I, I'm not particularly concerned like you. I, I I can't get over the fact that I just simply don't believe that a robot computer can convey the kinds of things that we as human beings can. Um, I remember the I forget which newspaper it was in one of the major outlets. It's you know it's the headline was ChatGPT can write your term paper dot 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 but you will fail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's not something that, um, that I lose sleep over. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Megan's point about the paywall is an excellent one. The it's robots business, always ultimately. win. They're going to get right. paid no matter what. <laughs> That's right. They're going to defeat us, uh, but not this year. Uh, Shannon, thanks for coming on the show. We've got tons of questions to get through the next time you show up. Um, so glad to have you anytime. Thanks, Ian. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about taxes, everybody's favorite subject. So don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. 
Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're going to talk taxes. Uh, joining me to help me prepare my taxes uh, is one of our college finance experts, Lori Peltier. Hi, Lori. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm well. I've got some tax questions for you. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I, I don't. I have some tax questions for you, but they're not specific to my, my mm-hmm. taxes. That's a problem for me to solve on another day. Um, the big question is: Are there tax breaks that a parent can take if they are paying for their child's college education? Yes, there's several. Um, the two most popular are the American Opportunities Tax Credit, which is the most generous, and then the Lifetime Learning Credit. The American Opportunities Tax Credit is for when you're paying tuition and fees for undergrad, Mm -hmm. and you can take it for four years. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be sequential, but four years uh, per dependent is the uh, maximum. So some families um, kind of phase out of that. And the lifetime learning credit kind of comes up behind it. It's not as generous a credit, but it's still very helpful. And it can be used for grad school or say that fifth year of undergrad. Um, that you want to take a credit for paying tuition and fees. Do you find typically that the lifetime learning credit is something that is used by parents for their dependents, or is it something that are used by adult learners who are going back to school in most cases? Most cases, it's adult learners going back to school. Gotcha. Now, what what about qualification for these tax breaks? Is this something that any earner can qualify for or are there income thresholds attached? There are, unfortunately, income thresholds. And uh, so if you're filing your taxes, married filing jointly, your adjusted gross income has to be below $180,000. If you're filing single, it has to be below $90,000. So there are many people who don't qualify for the credit, even though they are paying tuition and fees. And it doesn't matter how many children you're paying tuition and fees for. The threshold is the same, no matter how many dependents you have. Is the credit always the same, um, regardless of income, or is there a sliding scale of some kind? There is a sliding scale once you hit 170000 Okay. So if your income is between one seventy and one eighty, and you're filing jointly, um, you'll get a portion of it. At one you you'll get nothing. Um, gotcha. But there is a sliding scale once you get to the top end of the threshold. But 160 or 75 makes no difference in terms of the totality of the credit, the total. Correct. Okay. 
Gotcha. Um, now, what about loans and how do they fit into this, right? So I'm a, I'm a parent and I've borrowed a loan and I'm paying for college. Does Do I still qualify for this given that I'm using a loan to pay for college? And, yes, and what you if, do. What about if my student borrows a loan? Is that, is that something that's available to them too? So the student typically cannot take the credit. Uh, the parent is the one who's taking the credit. Um, but there's two ways that your loan can come into play. Yes, mm-hmm. you can pay for tuition and fees with a loan and still take the credit. It's just as if you paid cash. Okay. Um, so you're still paying tuition out of your pocket. You're just paying the loan back later. Um, and then there is another credit for paying back a loan called a student loan interest deduction. So you can get a deduction on your income if you're paying interest on a student loan uh, or a parent loan. So it might not be while the child's in school, but when you're in repayment on the loan, that credit comes along. And is there, let's say that it's student loans that are paying for my kid's education. Does that become a potential tax opportunity for me, a tax credit opportunity for me, or is that something that would only apply to the student since they're the one technically paying for it. How does that right. work? Um, that sounds complicated, but basically <laughs> the school is going to issue you a statement okay. um, called a 1098T. And every semester they'll send you a 1098T showing what you were charged for tuition and fees and what you received in a scholarship and grant and what you paid. So it doesn't matter how you paid that okay. portion. It could be a student loan, could be a parent loan. Gotcha. That's very, very helpful. Um, what about, so you mentioned grant aid. Um, how does work study fit into this as well? That goes into the student's bank account, essentially, right? Um, in right. many cases. Are, are those earnings taxed? Do they count as a scholarship in some respect? Like, How do we classify that when we're thinking about the cost of college for taxes? I, yeah, I would think of work study just like a part-time job in high school. So okay. it, it's a part-time job for the student. It's a job just like any other. There will be taxes taken out depending on how they fill out their uh, W-4 form mm-hmm. uh, with the employer, who is typically the college. Um, so they could have taxes taken out. The student probably wants to file a tax return to get those taxes back because they usually don't have a tax obligation at the end of the year. So they usually get a refund. Um, But the good news is that those earnings that a student has from work study, although they are taxable earnings, they don't affect your FAFSA form and your financial aid going forward. So it's not going to drive up the student's income to make them ineligible for aid. And typically, I I recall from past conversations on the show that student income is a big share of the pie in terms of the Mm -hmm. FAFSA relative to parent income as a percentage. It it can be once the student has earned more than $7,000. Gotcha. Then it starts to be a big piece of the pie. And does work study count toward that 7,000 or is it in a separate bucket? It's in a separate bucket. Great. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Now let's talk a little bit about these gifts that you get from colleges in the forms of scholarships and grants. Sometimes you'll get a gift, but then you'll have to pay taxes on that gift. And suddenly it feels like an obligation in some respect, even though you still do get the grant. Um, Are scholarships and grants taxable? Do do, Do families have to claim them in some ways on their taxes? So if it exceeds tuition and fees, so if it's paying for room and board 
and books mm -hmm. and supplies, then it is a taxable gift, but it's taxed at the child's rate. So the child would claim that on their taxes. Uh, so for example, you know, a division one athlete that's getting a full scholarship of everything, um, the tuition and fees portion is not taxable, but the room and board books and supplies portion is taxable. Okay. And, but, but it's typically a small amount and it's going to be taxed. Okay. So, and still probably better than having to pay yes. the, the additional <laughs> right. room and board. Right. Now let's get into the zone that I really care about, right? Cause I got the younger kids. Let's talk about five, two nines, uh, and saving for college. Mm -hmm. Um, so first of all, what, what kind of opportunities are there for people in terms of five to nine savings uh, for tax dedu deductions or tax credits? Is there anything at the federal level or is it all state level? So your contributions can be tax deductible on the state level, depending on the state you live in. But on the other end, when your children are old enough and you're using the money, you can pull the money out uh, tax-free if it's used for the specific qualified expenses that 529s count for. So as long as you're using it properly, you won't ever have to pay taxes or penalties uh, on your 529 savings. And I assume that there's paperwork that goes to show that these are qualified educational ex expenses so that you're not, you're not paying taxes you know, it, on it, it's, um, it's amazing that the IRS doesn't require more paperwork regarding that. Um, it's only really if you get audited, mm -hmm. you would have to prove that that withdrawal was qualified. Gotcha. So you get a 10, what's called a 1099Q when you withdraw from the 529 plan. I would keep that as a document to say, this is what I withdrew and when I withdrew it and what student it was for. Mm -hmm. And then you would want to keep copies of your bills from the college to gotcha. say, I use this. And you can automatically transfer your 529 plan withdrawal right to the college. So it's a very clean transaction and there's no question about what it use, was used for. Interesting. And, and, you know, people will recall that, you know, because contributions to 529s are post-tax, that's why you're not paying tax when you're using it. It's because you already paid taxes on those funds when they hit your bank account, and then you mm -hmm. put them off into that 529. Um, any other documentation that's important for people to keep an eye on when they're making these withdrawals, especially for educational expenses that might not be as clean as, say, a tuition bill? Um, what should I keep an eye on and, and right. save? Um, what comes to mind is living off campus. You can use it for rent for off campus, but you would definitely want to keep a copy of the lease or the copies of the rent payments you've been making, books, computer supplies. Um, the 529 expenses, uh, qualified expenses has been growing. Uh, K through 12 tuition for $10,000 a year is allowed. So you'd want to keep that tuition bill. Uh, you can use $10,000 per child for a student loan payment. Uh, so you, you could keep track of that. And coming up in the future, you can use leftover 529 plan money to put it in a Roth IRA for the student. Uh, but that's coming down. That's new, right? That's an interesting, yes. interesting new thing. Okay. And that's because Roth IRAs are also post-tax contributions. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're very similar kind of investment mm -hmm. vehicles. Okay. Uh, any chance that the cost of college will be going down, Lori? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, you know, I've been with College Coach for almost 20 years now, and I keep waiting for it to happen. It kind of levels out and the increases slow down, but it hasn't been going down from what I've seen. Okay. 
Well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> College tuition, not likely to fall. Uh, Laurie, thanks for walking us through some of those tax breaks. I know tax season can be really stressful for people, but uh, it's nice to hear that a lot of the benefits you get for attending college do not get taken uh, back by the government when that happens. So that's an upshot for me. Um, when we are back next week, we're going to have Beth again in the hosting chair, and we're going to focus on middle school. So we've got a double episode with a couple of guests from our college coach team talking all about how to master middle school and get ready for those expectations in high school. If you have any younger students in the house, or if you've got friends of the family who have younger students, yours have long left middle school behind, please do refer them to the podcast. And then we will also talk about something that is a passion project for many of our college finance experts, which is personal finance, how to raise financially responsible kids. And it starts pretty early, but it's a really great investment of time and energy in order to, to achieve that goal. So we look forward to having you back next week. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy the weekend. Be well, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.